Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Impact Theory. Regardless of what's happening in the world, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to never, ever, ever, ever stop exercising your mind. Learning is going to be the thing that pushes you forward. So today, we're going to highlight some of the remarkable past guests that we've had that have been deemed the new thought leaders by Success Magazine. And on this special episode, we are hoping that you guys will take the information because it will shape and improve your life if you let it, because these people are the very people defining what personal development truly means. So get ready, buckle up, have your mind open, and behold our first guest, the one and only, Gabrielle Bernstein. One of the things I wanna talk about, and this is one of my favorite ideas that you have, is the notion that between you and feeling better is a decision to stop feeling yeah. bad. Pick one. Which gets into neurochemistry for me and like the ability for us to consciously shift our moods. Yeah. How doth one do that? Well, first let's address the viewer or listener out there that's like, well, I'm depressed or I'm broke or I'm chronically ill how could I decide to stop feeling bad, right? Let's just be real with that one. And uh, I want to give an example of what that meant for me in my own life. And so uh, recently, about five months ago, I just uh, was diagnosed with postpartum depression, anxiety, and insomnia. You know, having authored seven self-help books and having to, to really fall to my knees and realize that there was something really happening here. And the reason I was able to find the right resources and doctors and, and even medication that I needed to, to live, to survive, to not, you know, not do difficult things to myself, was uh, because of this method, because of this belief system. Even in my darkest moment, even in the deep depression, I was able to say that each day I could reach into what was a better feeling experience. So I, you would think through what that looked like? I would celebrate the good stuff. I would say, okay, I slept one extra hour last night or thank, thank God I have a husband and childcare that can support me through this period. Or I am opening up now to the possibility of taking medication if I have to. So even just leading, leading myself proactively into a better feeling thought, even if that better feeling thought was still kind of low vibe, it was better than despair. Right, and so it is reconditioning your your brain functioning, but it's also a spiritual act because when we have those moments where we say, "I'd like to see things differently," that's actually a prayer, right? And the more often we do it, we change the neural pathways. You talk about thoughts taking form. I found that really interesting, and, yeah. and I'm uh, this is a terrible way to say it, but I'm glad that you went through something so profound Me too. Me because too. Me too. I think there's a lot of legitimacy then that's lent to that because Me too. the. So Lisa and I, a dear friend of ours, his son just committed suicide. Yep. And that shit is so scary to yep. me yep. that you sort of believe that that neurochemistry is going to last forever. Right. And if you're not taking steps to get out of that, whether it's going and seeking professional help, getting medication, 
and certainly spending time to remind yourself that these things are ultimately changeable one way or the other, it it becomes a sense of despair, like you said. Yeah, and I think that you're making a really good point, which is that that I am glad that this happened to me, particularly now that I'm feeling much better. But I can look back and say, okay, that was that was divine work. That was intended. That was no accident. Because now I, you know, for I've been speaking for 15 years on spiritual topics, but I was never fully. I was probably part of the stigma. You know, I was like, I was looking at my audiences and saying, like, someone would be like, I'm depressed, and, and I wouldn't ever in a million years say, get off your medication, or like, that was not my style, but I would say things like, well, you know, you need to deepen your meditation practice, and there is actually a point where your meditation practice just doesn't work, and that was the case for me, you know? It's like, when you're dealing with a biochemical issue, your tools will no longer work, and that was exactly what happened for me, and I love that I can speak to that with authenticity, and I love that I can really, really look at mental illness with so much more compassion understanding and education than I would have had I not been through this myself. And to speak publicly about the fact that I had to go on medication right when I was about to launch my seventh self-help book, you know, and that it saved my life. Our peers in the locker room, in the school, after school activities, whenever a peer or other boys are telling you don't fall down, don't, crawl, don't cry, don't show emotion, don't be a, you know, any type of word we wanna use here, don't be a little girl, don't be a, a whatever it may be. All you wanna do is be accepted in this little community of your peers when you're growing up. You wanna be accepted. And if you stand up to the peers, your group that you're in, and you're like, you know what, I'm gonna rise above this and I am gonna show my emotions and I am gonna cry or I am gonna uh, not bully the other people like you're bullying them. I'm not gonna laugh at that kid because that doesn't feel good. But when you get outcast for trying to be a good human being as a seven-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old from teammates, bandmates, classmates, whatever, you don't want to be alone as a kid. Mm. Feeling isolated as a child, from my mind, is the, the scariest thing because that leads to depression, which leads to you know, drugs, alcohol, suicides, prison. You know, I witnessed this firsthand what it was like feeling outcast and the thoughts, the conversations I had with myself by feeling alone, going to the principal's office and every time going to the principal's office when I would get in trouble, I would say, I wish I were dead. I was like, I have no friends. Why am I even alive? I wish I were dead. I remember saying this, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. So for me, it's like, okay, I need to put on something to be accepted by people. I need to be the biggest, fastest, strongest, so that I'm accepted on a sports team. I need to be able to get a girlfriend so that other guys think I'm cool and they'll hang out with me. I need to be able to make money so that I can take people out and pay for their lunch and dinner. I need to be able to be driven enough so that I'm accepted in society. And I think that's the challenge. It's hard if you're like, I have these like morals and ideals and I'm gonna stand up as a, a, a seven-year-old boy and like, Screw the world, this is who I, what, what right. I am, what I stand for. I don't care if you don't wanna be my friend, I can do it on my own. Like, we don't think that way growing up. Sure. We wanna just feel accepted and loved and just be a part of the class. And I never felt that way. And so I was driven to be part of my class, my team. Uh, and um, now I grew up very loving and supportive, but I also grew up driven with these masks to try to be even more accepted because I was afraid to be alone. 
So how have you learned to read your emotions, to not just give in to them and to have the same kind of um, high degree of you know, consciousness around how you shape that as well? Uh, one, revisiting it a lot. But let's, let's give a framework to what you're talking about and then we'll drop into the emotion piece. Is I love that you keep saying it's simple. And for some people, they, they, they don't think that way. So it's not simple. So let's give them a framework. Number one, what we're really talking about here is contemplation. Really thinking through and using the power of thought of what you want, what do you want to be like, what are the skills you want to deliver, what's the service you want to offer to the world. Number two, the consistency of action to not only create that in your own body, in your own mind, but create that, start creating that result in the world. That's really important. Number three is courage. Because it takes courage to put yourself out there and try to get a little better. Like it was even just laying in bed, visualizing myself doing something on stage that was way outside my boundaries of like comfort. Like walk across the stage really fast. Like walk down to the audience and give high fives and you know say something strong or you know admit something or share something vulnerable. Like that's courage. That's scary. But the other thing is, I think that you and I have always had, which sometimes is undervalued, is we also had community we had other people, you had Lisa, you know, I had Denise. We had people in our industry or our peer set who we looked up to or who we could learn from or who we could be like, this sucks, this is hard. And for me, coming back to your emotional element, that has been everything for me, community. Having people in my life who I can, you know, when I'm on, the road for X amount of time, or I'm dealing with a super hard client, or we're rolling out a leadership program to a Fortune 50 company, or you know, I'm doing my first you know, major deal with Oprah Winfrey Network, and I don't know what to do. I am so incredibly fast of asking people what to do. I'm also incredibly fast in sharing how I feel about it. Being like, oh, you know, I feel really awkward about this. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm unsure. You know, I'm having a lot of self-doubt. How would you deal with it? Like, I'm somebody who expresses emotions all the time. My frigging tagline is bring the joy. Like, everybody knows that. Why? Because I want to make sure people know you're, we're going to create this energy. Because emotion is not something you have. It is something you generate. Emotion can be an impulse. But feelings is our interpretations of those impulses over a period of time. And I said, I want to feel vibrancy, joy, love, connection, satisfaction, fulfillment in my life. So I'm going to learn to generate those emotions. How do you learn to generate the emotions? You read psychology. How do you learn to generate the emotions? You try. Like you're just like, I, I'm going to go, we're going to have date night tonight. I'm going to make it a fun night. I'm going to make it a fun night. I'm going to, I'm going to do things to see, can I make people laugh? Can I make people turn their lights on? Um, you learn to control your own emotions and or deal with them in better ways as you decide to be a more mature person. One of the chapters in your book, if I'm not mistaken, it was the last chapter, is about legacy. Yeah. How do you think about legacy? I like personally, I don't think a lot about legacy. I think a lot about phases of our lives. So I, yeah. I fully resonate with yeah. what you're saying about walking around the graveyard, yeah. which I would fucking love to do yeah. with you someday. That would be sure. real. Um, but how do you conceptualize that? Do you have markers in your head about what you're striving towards? Like how deep do you go in sort of the like we're all headed to the grave? Yeah, I don't, I don't get to 
the particular parts of it, like, you know, like how my funeral's gonna be set up, that creeps me out. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't get that end up. But I do think about like the question that I ask myself, and it's come up a lot more to me, you know, and I, I haven't figured out why. But I ask myself, you know, like what really matters? And there's a quote by Bob Goff, and I'm probably not gonna get this right, but he said basically like his biggest fear was like being successful at the wrong things. And the quote is like way more beautiful than that, but I'm paraphrasing. It's like, I used to have a fear of not succeeding, but my fear now is succeeding at the wrong things. Mm. And I think about that a lot. Like what's really gonna matter at the end of my life? And I literally prioritize my life around that. I heard you say something once you wanna talk about, I'm gonna butcher one of your just insanely yeah. eloquent and beautiful quotes, but you said, uh, you're not a success unless you're a success to your family. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Something because I don't have kids, I don't spend a lot of time thinking yeah. about, but I do think a lot about what my wife thinks of me. Like that's a, a yeah. far more powerful motivator to me. And then you talked about how, basically how do you feel about yourself? And if you don't feel good about yourself, then you've got some fundamental flaw that you need to address. How do you help people begin to take stock of where they're at with themselves? Reality. So I have a rehab process and the first R is reality. It's facing reality. Too many people run from it. You know, my quote is, you'll never win your war by running from your battles. And so you got to step up and you got to face it. I don't care what it is. It might be something in your past. It might suck to face it. For me, it was facing that my dream was over, my identity. So for somebody watching this, it might be a relationship. It might be a job. But I kept running. And the thing about it, like, you can run all you want, but reality is going to be right there when you stop and it's going to chase you. Or even if it doesn't chase you, it's going to be right there and you have to face it. So I really let people know that acknowledgement is power. People think if I acknowledge that I'm hurt or I need help, I need help is the most powerful thing that you can say. And I realized that with my life because immediately you have people that are going to help you and grow your life. Exposing yourself, like in a positive way, obviously, but expose yourself. We think that we always have to be so sheltered, that we have to be so strong, especially with the social media world. It's like, oh, I have to have everything together. That's like a silent depression that's going to happen. When you suppress things like that, when you smile for the camera but die behind the scenes, which I did so well for so long in my life, you're never going to fool the person that you see in the mirror every single day. So I've gotten really comfortable with saying, I suck at this. I need help. And literally, in my business life, in my personal life, in the last year, it's been the greatest year of my life, just by asking for help and exposing my weaknesses in certain areas. One of the things that I resonate so much with your work is your own ability to get through something, to walk through trauma as you talk a lot about, and to help other people walk through trauma. One thing I think would be really powerful, I'd love to hear like the story about your brother mm -hmm. Is, is extraordinary. I'd love to hear how you walked through that. Yeah, uh, so my older brother Ryan was paranoid schizophrenic, uh, had severe depression uh, that started, I don't, ha he was three years older than me and I don't have a memory of him being sick when I was little. He's just my big brother and, um, but as I think about the time that he started to go through puberty was when it started to really manifest and my parents tried everything, like every therapist, every doctor, um, and it just, for a myriad of reasons, just didn't work. Um, when he was 17 years old, he shot himself, and I had gone into his room to ask him to give me a ride to school that day, and I found him. And the that 
you know, 14, like that kind of trauma, I, I, for years, I mean, I think the years after he died, I don't even have a very clear memory of because it was so much weight. I had, and still do have some effects, but really severe uh, PTSD from that. Um, terrified of, you know, any loud noise, um, still super sensitive to sound and had really bad insomnia as a young adult. And all of these things that I didn't understand were the result of what had happened that day. And, um, it was, it was horrible. My, my childhood and family life was never good, but that decimated everything. I mean, there was nothing left of our family when that happened. Um, and, uh, I really destroyed both my parents and um, have never recovered from that. And honestly, now that I have children, I I understand. I don't know how you come back from that place, but I was also the baby of four and I was 14 and it did feel very much like, um, aren't I enough of a reason to keep living? And I never said that to them, but I definitely felt that way. Um, it's also why I, you know, graduated high school a year early from right after he died. Like I started taking every class that I could and got the credits that I needed so I could graduate early. And I moved to L.A. at 17 to get out of the house. Um, I didn't want to be in that place anymore. And I think at the time I had convinced myself that if I could just get to a different city, I think a lot of us do this. We think if I could just move to New York, or if I could just get to LA, or if I could, if only I could lose, you know, 50 pounds, or if only I could have this, or you, you think that your happiness is dependent on something outside yourself. And for me, I thought if I just need to be out of this town. And then I got to LA and re realized like, oh, that's just geography. Like it doesn't matter where you go, I'm still always going to be here. So um, I, I think for many years I just tried to survive it. But I will say for all the ways that my parents struggled, something I think they did really well was they made me go to therapy immediately and wow. they forced me to go often for years. Um, and I, there were so many times that I sat in the therapist's office and said nothing for an hour, arms crossed, like, screw you. I'm not going to say anything, but having, having someone in your life, I'm a huge advocate for therapy, having someone in your life that won't cry if you tell a hard story is really important. If you are someone who's always sort of shouldered the weight of things for your family or kind of been the one that takes care of everybody else, you don't share your hardships, you don't share your struggles because you don't want anyone else to hurt. And so now I'm surrounded by all these people who are hurting and I can't tell them what I saw and I can't tell them, you know, all of the things that I'm struggling with. But a therapist for me was a lifeline because if I told them those things, they didn't know Ryan. And so it didn't hurt them to hear. And I needed that desperately. As you were talking just now, I thought, God, is his secret power that he doesn't judge himself? Do you, do you feel like you judge yourself? I don't. That's a very, very, very good observation, and it's what I want for everybody else. We're beating ourselves up. Like, everybody sucks at something, right? Like, we all have shortcomings, and we all have strengths. And for me, it's like, why don't we just audit that? Like, why don't we just look at it that way and be like, all right, well, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at that. Like, and then, and, then, and then I only focus what I'm good at, right? Like, I don't dwell that I can't fix shit around the house. I call somebody to fix it. 
Like I'm not like I'm not a man. I don't give a fuck. Like you know, like like you know, like I don't I don't get it. Like we all like I also think it's awesome that I'm so emotionally stable and I'm the emotional backbone of everybody. Is that what a dude's supposed to do? Like like these cliches, these stereotypes, they're so silly. Um, you're exactly right, man. I don't judge myself. I'm fully in love with myself. But I'm also fully in love with everybody else too, right? It's not like, like it goes both ways. Like I tell people to buy into me that work for me, it's because I buy into them first. Like I don't need anybody to gain trust with me. I, it's there. Like I believe that the human race is so grossly underrated. We are good. Of course we have some bad. There's fucking seven billion of us. But like when you look at our net score, it's bonkers shit. Like do you know how much damage we could be doing to each other on an hourly basis and we don't? Like we're still here. Like we won. We're the alpha being and we've figured out how to stay together. This is insane when you think about it. And yet everybody wants to dwell on like somebody said something mean. What I love is in that though is your whole concept of nobody's ever let me down. Mm. So this is what I always tell people about the things you're ever going to hear me say will always be consistent with exactly what I'd say if you woke me up in the middle of the night and then punched me in the head. Because it has to be so real. It has to be so fundamental to who I am as a human being that I'll give you that answer even if I'm dazed and confused, right? Just because that is my fucking North Star. It's like my true foundation. And hearing you talk about how no one's ever let you down, it's like, like... Like to me, it's just binary. Like unless it's complete death blow, death to me and my 17 people that I give a shit about, like everything else is super secondary. And let me tell you something, if you actually get into that mindset, it gets real good. Like everybody like makes these big deals out of things that just don't matter. It's perspective. You know, my selfishness comes from my selflessness. Like it's what makes me feel good. I see it in my mother. My mom is the epicenter to every single person in her life. Her sister-in-law, her you know, cousins, aunts, everybody goes to her. That's her comfort zone, me too. Ask Gary V. Like, like this is my comfort zone. Like, I like this. Like, I hate when people are like, what can I do for you? Like, I, I say nothing. I don't want anything. I hate that feeling. I went into my family business because I felt like I owed it to, like, pay them back. Those are my parents. So if that's what I feel about them, what do you think I think about everybody else? What are some of the most interesting and useful lessons about creativity you've pulled from the book? Uh, the first that comes to mind is setting really low expectations. <laughs> and then this, and I'll tell you. Not what I was expecting. Not, to say. Well, not what a lot of people expect. And when I spoke to, say, Paulo Coelho, who's sold 100 million plus copies, The Alchemist, et cetera, you talk to Rick Rubin. So let me give his example first. When he has a musician who's stuck, great musician, but they've developed performance anxiety about songwriting for whatever reason. Uh, He will say, do you think you could get me one sentence or maybe two words that you like by tomorrow? That's it, two words. Can you do that for me? And he gives them a micro assignment. Uh, Best writing advice that I probably ever received, and I've, I've received a lot of good writing advice, but I can get myself really wound up because I expect perfection to flow from my fingertips like magic, and that never happens. So then I beat the hell out of myself, and that makes me less likely to put pen to paper in the first place. Mm -hmm. I'll procrastinate, which is why if you write two crappy pages per day, you've won the day. That's Mm -hmm. a successful writing day. And 
that does a few things. It helps you to maintain enthusiasm because you're constantly winning. And of course, on many days, you'll write more than two. You'll get to two, then you go to five or to 10. But if you're on an off day, you write two crappy pages, even if you never use it, it's a successful day. And that, I think, for longer term projects and, and extended creativity is really important. But the story that this writer told me with that tip, he said, okay, this is where this comes from. Did you know that IBM, when it was the 800 pound gorilla, it was an undefeatable sales force. Do you know what one of their rules was? He's like, no. Uh, he says, well, what do you think their quotas were? And I was like, well, I'm sure their quotas were really high because they wanted to motivate their guys to get after it. And he goes, no, their quotas were the lowest in the industry. Wow. And the rationale was we don't want our salespeople to be intimidated to pick up the phone. Mm. We want them to feel like they're going to pass their quota quickly, which they did, and then they shot well past it and clobbered the competition. So the, 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 the counterintuitive pairing of low expectations leading to higher performance is really odd. Right? Well, so let's and, ask the obvious question then. Yeah. So as somebody who's had a lot of employees at the, you know, at the height I had, uh, over a thousand employees, that feels dangerous. Yeah. And it feels dangerous, and I think I have my own answer, but it feels dangerous because some people, especially when an organization gets that big, they're looking for a place to hide and you yeah. give it to them. Yeah, so I, I, so the, I think that the, the, the winning combination is selectively, selectively low quotas on a daily basis with high expectations for metrics on, say, a quarterly or annual basis. So you're tracking the numbers, you want them to hit home runs, but it doesn't have to be one at bat. I think it's also very context and role specific. But if we're talking about creativity in particular, right? So not necessarily work output, the approach I, I, there are a number of prolific writers who have said, Neil Strauss said this, there's no such thing as writer's block, which drives me crazy. So I'm like, come on, like, you might be a mutant like X-Men of writing, but for like, normal humans, come on, like, give me a break. And he goes, no, 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 hear me out. Number one, he is a trained journalist, and journalists tend to have writing block beaten right. out of them because their boss is like, <laughs> oh, you can't find the right prose for your 500 word article, oh, get it in by five o'clock, asshole. You know? And they're just like, oh, 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 wait, this isn't school? And they're like, yeah, deadline. That's, that's, your, that's your incentive, writer's block my ass. And he's like, oh, okay. But he said, and what, what they learn is, he, he said, there's no such thing as writer's block. He said, what that is, is performance anxiety that you've imposed on yourself because your expectations are too high. There are three questions that you get asked a lot. Mm -hmm. What are they? Ooh, the big one is how do I find my passion? Okay, and you can tell me the question. I need you to answer each one of them. Yeah. But I, if you want to run through what each of the questions are and then we'll go back or? Sure. Yeah, no, I'll just do them as they are. Perfect. So how do I find my passion? My simple model, which is the Dharma model. It also, Dharma means eternal duty in the Vedic tradition. It's very similar to what Ikigai is being spoken about today, which is a Japanese version of reason for being. Why do we live? Where is meaning coming from? And it talks about an intersect of four areas. What am I good at? What do I love? What does the world need? And how do I get paid for it? To me, those four help you unlock your passion. When you find the intersect across all of those four, you're making your passion your purpose. You'll unlock your passion, you'll find your purpose. This is path one, there's two paths. Path one, I find my skill set 
and I engage it to help other people and become better at it. So I'm becoming better at what I'm good at and I'm using it to help other people because I'm aware of what I'm quite good at and I know what, what knowledge I have, what skills I have. I have some self-awareness. The other path that people often miss is actually I just start serving people. I just start helping people and I start to notice what I enjoy about that and what I'm good at helping people with. So that's Gandhi's part. Gandhi said that you find yourself when you lose yourself in the service of others. So for me, those are the two paths of how do I find my passion and finding the intersect between those four areas. Love that. And the second one is, Jay, my relationship's falling apart. I get asked that all the time. So the answer to that is much harder. <laughs> it's, it's harder to summarize it, but I always start with self-actualization that the problem is we have a list for the one that we want and we don't have a list for what we need to become. And I don't mean become to attract, I mean become to just be, to just get to understand yourself. You don't know what you need in your life until you figure out who you are. And so I find too many people rush into relationships without really recognizing and being fully aware of what they need from a relationship. So it all comes back to how aware are you? How much understanding do you have of yourself and what you need and what you want? That's my best advice for relationship in like a minute. And, and then the third question I mostly get asked is, Jay, what do you read? Like, what are your favorite books? Because it seems you read a lot. What are your top three books? They're not groundbreaking in the sense that people may not be like, oh my God, that's the best book I've ever read. For me, they changed my life. So that's where I'm coming at a point from. I love Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And not because I applied it to businesses, because I applied it to my life. And even today, I'm constantly refining my why. That's all I do every day. My deepest morning routine and practice is to refine why I do what I do. It's so easy for me to now do it for money. It's so easy for me to now do it for followers. It's so easy for me to now do it for fame. And every day I have to refine that because I know having lived as a monk and what I practice that if those become what I want, then I'll forget who I need to be. So my daily practice and my daily routine is refining my intention which in modern language is why. So for me, Simon's book helped me do that. The Bhagavad Gita, which I would love to do for Vedic knowledge, what Ryan's done for Stoicism. And the Bhagavad Gita, over 5,000 years old. And that book really exemplifies human challenge. Third book, I'd say, this one's gonna be hard because it's the last one. Let me think. I'm gonna try to throw something else in there. So I've done one like self-development, one more spiritual enlightenment. Let me throw a business book in, seeing as I'm sure you have a lot of business viewers. I love the book Exponential Organizations. I don't know if you've read it. It's by Salim Ishmael and the Singularity University. And that book for me is an incredible analysis of the success of all the organizations we see ruling our phone today. The way it breaks down their business models and how they were created to me, it's fascinating. So if anyone really wants to start up an exponential business today, then that's where they have to go. And that's when Peter Diamandis said that if you want to be a billionaire, redefining it is someone who impacts the lives of a billion people. And, and that's what that business book is really about, is how do you create an exponential organization that positively impacts a billion people? So those are my three for today. Your book is full of just a ridiculous litany of amazing quotes, both, both from you and other people. And you had a quote about this. 
And you said, beliefs are the hidden scripts that run our lives. And that's one of those, if you could get people to really internalize the fact that right now, your whole life is being dictated by the beliefs that you have. Yes. How do you help people unwind those beliefs? How do you help them replace them with more powerful beliefs? Because that is like a layer of the operating system that is so wildly underappreciated yeah. that that's almost always where I start with people. Yeah, it has to be, I think for all of us. I think the first thing for us to go to is that recognizing that beliefs are a choice and every choice can be changed. Yes. So beliefs are a choice and every choice can be changed. You Do know? people react like you're crazy when you say that? Um, you know, I haven't floated that out enough in a big enough audience to see people like, oh, I don't God. believe it. I'm um, dying to know how people respond well, to this. Well, let's see. Because yeah. I, I really think people think that beliefs are recognition of truth. And that to try to change your beliefs is to try to deny the truth in some way. Well, I mean, for anyone watching who ever believed in Santa Claus, <laughs> right? Like you believed things. I'm certain that I know I have, like you believed things when you were younger, even if you weren't a child, if you were a teenager or you were a young adult that now experience or wisdom or something has shown, you know, that's not actually the truth. Anyway, my point is this, we collectively have believed things both individually and as a society over time that we've changed our beliefs. So I think that that is proof positive that our beliefs are a choice and those choices can indeed be changed. You know, obviously there is the phenomenon known as confirmation bias, which is the brain's um, just, uh, it tends to reinforce what we already believe and then ignore information consciously or subconsciously that doesn't match what we already believe, which is often why whenever we're having conversations about really um, delicate topics, like it could be about gun, gun control or reproductive rights or race, and they just evolve so fast because people hunker down in their belief bunkers mm. and they're unwilling to see another point of view. But I do hold fast to the fact that all beliefs are a choice and choices can be changed. And here's what else is cool. Um, you know this because you're so immersed in the world of personal development. You're someone who is so committed to learning and growth. Over the years, I've read more personal development books than you can like just shake a tree at. And oftentimes, part of the exercise is like you have to go hunt down all of your limiting beliefs, right? So if you want to become this powerful person and be the best that you can be, you need to find every single limiting belief and then change it and do all these different things. Here's what I realized when writing this book. You actually don't need to do that. I have a time-saving tool because everybody needs to save some time and to make this really effective and efficient. If you adopt the belief that everything is figureoutable and you take that on for yourself, you don't need to go hunting down all your limiting beliefs because that one thing is like the master key that handles everything below it. It's almost like flipping a switch in your consciousness where then everything else becomes possible. So let's say if you're like, oh, everything is figureoutable, you bump up into something in your relationship that feels like, it's problematic. You're like, oh, I could figure this out. You don't need to go necessarily looking for all those limiting beliefs. You may eventually uncover them and that's cool. You can kind of clean them out, but you don't have to do all this front end work. Adopt this one. It's like the master key and it'll help you achieve anything you want for the rest of your life. This is not like hype. I'm dead serious on this. All right, guys, I really hope you enjoyed learning from these incredible individuals. I know I have taken so much away from them and all of the amazing insights that they have to offer really will shape your life if you let it. Please never stop learning and growing. That is gonna be your best defense in this time. It's also gonna be your best offense. So never, ever, ever stop growing. Thanks for watching. And until next time, my friends, be legendary.
Take care. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.